This is MedHead Economics recording from Cornell University. My name is Yu Dong, and today on our show, we invited our old friend, Professor David Just. Hello. And our new guest star, Professor Killian Weinberger. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> professor Killian Weinberger is an associate professor in the Department of Computer Science at Cornell University. His research focuses on machine learning and its application, and his recent paper, Densely Connected Convolutional Networks, was awarded with the best paper in the Conference on Computer Vision and Pattern Recognition in 2017. For now, machine learning has become a pretty popular topic in our life. Humans' behaviors are impacting um, by machine learning, and so today our conversation will uh, talk about how, how those impacts humans' behaviors and how humans' behavior impacts machine learning. So for now, so Professor Weinberg, could you explain um, the, what is the machine learning for our audience? Uh, yes, sure. So machine learning is in some sense the uh, part of computer science that um, occupies itself with the question, how can we write programs that learn from experience? So in, um, a simple example is if you like traditional programming, you basically write all the code by hand. So for example, if I were to write an MP3 player for an Apple iPod or something, I would look up on Wikipedia or somewhere what the specification of an MP3 file is, and then I would basically write a program, and it would take me a couple of days to read in that file, you know, decodes it according to these specifications, and then generate some audio sound or something. So when you have a well-defined problem like this, right, you know, traditional coding is the right way of, of looking at things. Machine learning turns things a little bit around. So the kind of problems that machine learning uh, looks at is, you know, and these are kind of the problems that I face in my research is people come to me and say, you know, for example, a doctor comes to me and says, here's an image of a brain scan, and I would like to know if the person has Alzheimer, yes or no. Right? And the problem is I have no nowhere to look up what are the specifications of you know Alzheimer or something. Like there's just no, you know, I don't know how to do this. And so and nobody knows, right? So no one can write that program. But one thing you can do is you can select, uh, I can go to the doctor and say, well, with that one image, I can't help you. But if you have past data, then maybe you can learn it. So if the uh, doctor basically goes back in his or her database of uh, scans from maybe 10 or, 15, or five years ago. And by now, basically, for these people, it's clear that person did have Alzheimer or didn't, because after, you know, at some points, the symptoms become obvious. Then you can basically feed these, you know, these images into a machine learning algorithm and then you know, say, this one is a yes, this one is a no, this one is a yes, this one is a no. And the more you have of this kind, the, you know, if this is a learnable problem, then these machine learning algorithms will find patterns in this data that basically says, okay, well, you know, we can now, on this data that you gave, gave us, we can now, with a very high accuracy or something, predict if an image you know, is positive or is negative. And then once you have that, once this is learned, the output really is kind of like a program. It's like as if someone had written it, it's just automatically generated. And then you stick in that original image that the person gave you, and now it gives you a prediction, which could be there's a 70% chance the person has Alzheimer's or something like this. It's sort of astounding to me. I, I, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, and, and when you think about this, you, you think about that brain scan, and, and really it's like having a huge, huge number of variables there and, and a small amount of data. I, I guess the, the way I would think about it, it's sort of like having um, – having a lot of different variables in, a, in an equation system and just not very many equations. So it's, it's what 
economists would call under-identified. You, you can't solve it for a unique solution. So how do you get around that? Yeah, exactly right. So, for example, in, in these brain scans, right, these are voxels, right? You may have millions of voxels per scan, right? And you may have a couple hundred scans. So there's, like, you know, you will always find some pattern, right, that says this pattern is very predictive of the person having Alzheimer's. And that's a problem. And so uh, in machine learning, um, what you basically, you know, the, the approach of machine learning typically is what we refer to as regularization, is we try to find the simplest solution and some definition of simplicity. So there's various uh, definitions that still can predict uh, the answer correctly. Um, an analogy is a little bit like, you know, that the people used to, you know, it wasn't clear back in the Middle Ages whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth. And both of these are perfectly valid models that describe, you know, what's going on in the sky. But one model is much, much simpler than the other, right? So once we assume the earth goes around the sun, then everything is just, you know, circles and all the other planets just move in circles, <laughs> right? And, you, you know, the, the, the model is much, much simpler and it's much easier to give predictions. And, and that's the same thing we're trying to do in machine learning. We try to give a very, try to come up with a very simple model that explains the data, that works correctly on the data that you gave us. Yeah, so what's your understanding for those model interpretability? So uh, the question is how interpretable are these yeah. models? And uh, the answer is often not very. Oh. Uh, and um, so machines just work differently than humans. And uh, what we think are obvious patterns to us is very much down to the way our brain works, our experiences are. And this is just not the experiences, not the history that these algorithms have. You know, a simple example is, you know, um, we just came back from NIPS and we had the discussion and, and, and someone showed this example of, of images with cows on it and, you know, and, and other images. And the question was like to detect if there is a cow in the image, yes or no. And the algorithm can do this very, very well, but it may just pick up on the grass, right? It may just ignore the cow in the, in the front and just realize that actually whenever you show a picture with grass, then actually there's a cow on it, just because that's kind of the data that you collected, right? You took pictures of cars in the city and, and cows outside in the green, right? And that's a perfectly valuable, and actually very nice, simple explanation. It's just we humans are surprised by this because we just can't look past that big fat cow that's in the center of the image, right? And for us, it's so obvious that that's the object of interest, but for a machine, that's not, right? So... What kind of patterns these machines pick up on is uh, often not so easy to figure out. But, but, you know, you can do sensitivity analysis. You can basically take parts of the images and say, let's black out that part of the image. Can it still detect it, right? And yeah. so, for example, the brain scans, you may, you know, you want to make sure that it really looks at the brain and not actually at some other part or something. This is interesting. because So there's, there's a long history in behavioral economics at... at um, and, and psychology, I should say, that it's, that it's built on, looking at how people recognize patterns um, and, and how they learn from those patterns. And the, the sort of disappointing thing is we see patterns when there aren't any, <laughs> right? We, we learn something from no information and, and, uh, and think that we've, we've got a very clear answer from it. How, how does, I mean, do you face that same sort of problem when you're, you're looking at machine learning that it might pick up on patterns that really aren't there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just different kind of patterns. Right? So we are, we are very, you know, fine-tuned to faces, for example. Right? So if you draw something in the sand just randomly, someone always finds a face in it or something, just because we're so, <laughs> you, know, you know, determined to find faces because that's so crucial for our survival. These algorithms do pick up on, on noise patterns that just happen to be present in one 
part of the data and not in the other. Okay. Uh, you can, however, detect these things. So when they find strange patterns that are uh, spurious, if it's just noise, for example, then if you hold out some data and test it on these other data, you know, data that you held out, typically the effect goes away and you just, you know, predict nonsense. The, the more tricky bit is if you have bias in your data. So if the data set was selected and actually, you know, for example, I, I try to predict the difference, you know, try to teach an algorithm to detect if there's a car in an image or a truck. And I first go around, take a bunch of pictures of cars, then I take around, take a bunch of pictures of, of trucks. And one thing you may just pick up on is that one set of images was taken later than the other one, so the sun was a little lower and the images are a little darker, right? So that'd be a very simple thing. The algorithm would immediately pick up on this, right? And so if, if the human is not very, very careful, you wouldn't maybe realize this and be fooled into thinking your algorithm is really, really amazing when it's really actually just doing something very simple. And so that's in some sense the art of getting machine learning right is being careful with the kind of data that you feed it, right? Yeah, so the, the data can't have spurious patterns in it, and uh, and you've got to watch out that it might get too simple an answer, answer huh? That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> if it does something really, really surprisingly amazing, you have to be careful. If it's too good to be true, it may be too good to be true. Could you uh, talk briefly about your paper, the densely convolutional networks? Yeah, so, um, so the paper is called, I think, Densely Connected Convolutional Neural Networks. Yeah. Um, so this, so com, com, uh, one thing is important that neural networks is just a small part of machine learning. So machine learning is really is an area that spans statistics, optimization theory, a lot of interactions with information theory, and one uh, there's many different approaches to machine learning. Uh, for example, you know, in optimization theory, you try to find a, a solution to it. You frame it as an optimization problem. Right? That's what we talked about earlier. Try to find a solution to this. Uh, you know, the, uh, that satisfies these specifications. One approach is function approximation through neural networks. I, I really dislike the name neural network because it gives this it, it sets up expectations that it does something like our brain, which is there is a very very faint connection, and it was initially inspired. I guess it was invented here at Cornell actually um, in uh, 1950s. Yeah, but that was the perceptron was the first kind of. You know, by Rosenblatt, uh, uh, he tried to make an artificial neuron. But ultimately, these algorithms that we have now are very different than the human brain. And it's like, you know, kind of like planes and birds, right? They both fly, but they're very different in every aspect. One thing that neural networks, the, the way this is essentially works is that you have a bunch of very tiny machine learning classifiers that just predict yes or no. And so you... And they predict something. You don't know what that is. You let the you know, algorithm decide what it predicts. But it predicts either yes or no, essentially. And then you stick the output of these classifiers into a new set of classifiers. And they take that and again predict yes or no, and so on. And the only thing you're specifying that at the end, it should predict the answer that you want, which is, for example, is there a cow in the image, yes or no? So here you have yeah. your yes or no question. And all the other yes or no questions down the line, they kind of initially they're just random actually, literally random. And then you basically, you, you know, you feed it some image and it either gets the answer right, in which case you do very little, and if it gets it wrong, then you basically say, you kind of, you know, you change it such that the output is more likely to be right next time. What we changed for this paper is that we changed the connectivity pattern. So beforehand, basically what people did is they used layer by layer. So they had a, 
a layer is basically maybe a maybe a thousand of these classifiers that all give a yes or no answer, and then I take the output of each one of them into a next layer of a thousand classifiers, into a next layer of a thousand classifiers. And every layer is just connected to the next layer and just connects to the next layer. What we did is we connected everything with everything. And that seemed, at first, when you think about this, this seems like a lot of connections. Like these neural networks have millions of neurons. Um, but it actually turns out one thing we found out that if you do this, if you connect everything with everything, then you can actually get away with having much, much, much fewer of these neurons. Because a lot of what they're doing is they are replicating what other neurons also learn, and they're just passing those along to the neural network. What we discovered is everything is interconnected, then they don't have to replicate because they can just talk to each other. And uh, so ultimately, actually, the networks became smaller and more efficient. So that was a surprising finding. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, that is surprising funny. And I'm guessing that uh, that allows for a lot more efficiency, at least in the end. That's right. The networks are smaller, uh, so they, they need less memory. They're, you know, uh, and they, but they also, then, of course, what you do is you make them bigger again, right? So you, <laughs> you pack and you need less, you know. So the way it always works is all these things are trained on graphic processing units. These are the extra cards that people put into PCs to uh, initially, originally designed to play games. 3D first-person shooters, and they only have a limited amount of memory. So that's kind of the limitation that we have to train these neural networks. So if we can make them smaller, then we actually fit more neurons into these, these networks. You, you can make for more complex so, so you can look, yeah. That's right. We have more complexity and more capacity <laughs> to learn. That's right. From a, you know, as a layperson's perspective, how are we... How are we likely to run into machine learning or, or you know, AI or things like that in our everyday lives? Um, you probably are using it every day already. So, um, for example, if you use a search engine, right, Google search engines, for example, Google, uh, or Bing, or, <laughs> I guess Google is not synonymous with search engines. Um, almost, almost. Almost. <laughs> Um, essentially, these are learned problems. So basically, and if you think about it, it's a completely impossible problem. You type in three words. And based on these three words, right, um, I don't know what you type in, Star Wars 8, or something, I don't know. Um, it's supposed to figure out which one of these, you know, billion of web pages you want, right? And it's, it's pretty much impossible, right? Um, but one thing you can basically, we can leverage is that humans have certain expectations and that basically humans have patterns that they follow. So there are some pages that are better than others, and uh, we can infer this by you know, looking at how uh, humans behave. So if you spend a lot of time on a page, it's probably good. So, you know, uh, then basically the search engine is trained to put those pages that people spend a lot of time on when they get them presented to the top and those that people just click away a second later more to the bottom. And essentially what they're doing, these, these search engine companies, they employ a lot of people that actually basically all day long get a small fraction of the search results and then just say, how good were the answers? Right? Was that a one, from a zero to five or something? Who knows? And uh, then with that data, gets fed back into the algorithm and gets retrained. You so know, that's what you get at the end. So it's not just pure, well, it I probably depends a bit on what search engine we're talking about, but it's not just pure, uh, we're looking at how long they spend on the page. That's just one of the statistics that you have about the page. So okay. you probably have hundreds and hundreds of statistics. Right? One could be if the web page has a .com or dot, you know, .edu or something ending or something else, right? That's also very informative. Is there pictures in the, in the page, et cetera? So essentially what these search engines are doing, they 
represent the page as a bunch of statistics that they collect about the page. Then they have the search query. They, they may have some information about you, your age, like your gender, etc. Like what a 14-year-old girl wants to see is very different than you know a middle-aged professor or something, right? Yeah. There may be different expectations when you type in something. And so then you basically try to predict what's the probability that you will click on this result. And then you get hard feedback, right? The person clicks on it or not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and that feeds back into it. It keeps that learning. The only thing is you have to be careful that you don't bias it too much because you would never click on the stuff that's on page 500 of the Google <laughs> results, right? So you have to occasionally move something up and just to see, do people click on it when I randomly present it? So that's interesting. So, so it's designed essentially to try and uh, feed us what we, what we are revealing that we want. That, that's um, right. That's right. Over and that's over right. again. That's right. I, I, it's surprising to me, though, that, so... I wonder exactly how um, how much that feedback actually changes what people decide to look at to begin with. Actually, the biggest feedback is actually your own brain. So you actually, when you use Google, you learn how Google behaves and you start changing your searches based on how, you know, what, what you get back. So that, that's certainly, that's the biggest feedback loop in some sense. So that, that people are not stationary. But um, yeah, otherwise, I mean, that's, that's definitely, you know, these things are retrained all the time. And it's, of course, it's not just uh, search engines. It's, you know, the you go to one of the services that provides uh, music, uh, you know, they're looking at your, uh, your listening patterns and they're figuring out what it is you want to listen to. You go to uh, Facebook or something like that and they're arranging their posts in a way that, that uh, feeds back from what you're doing, I'm, I'm guessing as well. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's just everywhere. I'm just wondering how comfortable you think people are with this idea of, of AI. Do they recognize that it's going on or do they think there's it's uh, it's more static and they're just interacting with something static? Um, that's a good question. They probably do not recognize that it's going on. Um, but it's also something people are used to, I think, at this point. So I... Uh, Certainly, I guess in Amazon, you see these recommendations, yeah. you know, people who bought this, you know, who, people who bought this electric, you know, remote control car also bought batteries, right? And then they usually make a lot of sense when you click on it. So I think, you know, they, they make your life more convenient. I, there is, there's people should maybe think about it a little more. There's a nice study from NYU that um, tried, did something uh, very interesting. They tried to predict a person's sexual orientation based on movie preference so you know basically just looked at you know ask people to rate uh, movies and then yeah. based on that predict if the person is gay or not and turns out you can actually predict that re relatively accurately <laughs> the the what's scary about this is that people who give movie recommendations do are not aware of the fact that they're revealing their yeah. information about their sexual orientation which could be used in ways that they are not aware of yeah. and so that that's where it gets dicey right and uh, that's that's why it's uh, you have to be careful what, what happens with the data down the road. Who owns the data? And what are they allowed to do with it? Yeah. I mean, it, so there are a whole bunch of wonderful papers from the econ side looking at how you can use this information that people reveal about their, their preferences to actually improve economic welfare, but essentially offer people uh, goods that are, are more likely to satisfy their desires and at prices they're more... Um, more likely to actually be able to afford um, and, and create a better outcome. It doesn't always get the, the same rep. I mean, when you talk to people about this idea, the offerings, the things that, uh, that people are pushing on them 
um, and advertising to them are adjusting to them and their personal desires and what they've been looking at on the web, people seem to get uncomfortable with it and, and think about it as if, as if it's nefarious, right? As if it's going to hurt them in some way. Yeah, and it is creepy. It is, right? you, you know, I'm sure you've seen this, right? When you go on Google and suddenly you see these things advertised that you just look. You know, I try to find a Christmas present for my wife, right? And the next time she logs in, she sees it on all the ads, right? It's like, there's, thank there's you very much. There's got to be a solution for that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and All of my kids, by the way, figured out this is the easy way to figure out what they're getting for Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> make sure you, you know, delete your search history or something. <laughs> Um, and and uh, yeah, I think that is problematic and, and it can be perceived as being intrusive because you realize that you're actually revealing stuff to these, these algorithms, right? Yeah. And also you find it in very different places, right? So you go to Amazon, you look at some product and later on you go to Google, which seemingly is a totally different place and you see advertisements, you know, about a product you looked at Amazon. Then you realize that it's all connected. That's it's the same it's all, ad companies. Exactly. They're all connected in the background and, and you'll, you'll see the ads everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely everywhere. So now we move to our next topic. So what do you, um, opinions for self-driving car, how the machine learning be applied in the self-driving car and how people's behaviors impact the development of self-driving car? That's, I guess that's multiple questions. But yeah. the, uh, so, <laughs> machine learning is definitely a big enabler to self-driving cars. But, but it's important to realize that self-driving cars have been worked on for many, many years and uh, often without any, you know, very little use of machine learning. Um, Google was certainly one of the, so Sebastian Thune, uh, who led the Google team, so he was one of the people who was pushing machine learning there very hard, I think. And, and lately it has come in very uh, in, in a big way. But in some sense, it's also just one more sensor, one more tool that you add to this already kind of pretty rich toolkit. What machine learning basically deals with is making predictions under uncertainty. That's, you know, certainly the, the, the context here. So, you know, a very clear application would be you have a camera in the front of the car and it recognizes street signs and uh, or tries to recognize where's the road, etc. That probably works fairly well, and it's not very hard. So these are exactly the convolutional network, the paper that we just talked about. You could use that immediately for these kind of uh, tasks. And, and actually a lot of, you know, there's a company in Israel, Mobileye, that actually produces, uh, you know, these things in hardware. And a lot of cars already have these built in, I guess. Um, there is, however, you know, there's also, you know, uh, a fair amount of the, uh, about self-driving cars that actually does not require machine learning, and in particular, if you don't have much uncertainty. So if you have a LiDAR, LiDAR is like a radar with laser uh, that's strapped on the top of the car and sends a little laser around and then, you know, basically uh, waits until the signal gets bounced off an object. And so this can, this is amazing that it works, and, but, but you can actually <laughs> detect the distance to, you know, basically get a point cloud of, of objects around you. And that is, there's very little uncertainty there. So you can actually detect, you know, cars in front of you. You can also use radars for that, actually. Um, and then there, you know, then in some sense, you need just algorithms to basically keep you on the road, etc. So machine learning comes in in a big way when, for example, your GPS drops off or with, you know, what if you suddenly there is uncertainty that you didn't have before, then then it certainly comes in. Or if you have very unpredictable uh, drivers that may drive somewhere where you actually, uh, where the, you know, where the road is very different than what you had before. Um, 
I know Tesla, for example, they use certainly convolutional neural networks, and they, they are spending much more machine learning than other companies are uh, doing. And one thing that that's uh, I think interesting about self-driving cars is that you know there's this. Well, what's important is that these these are just programs that detect patterns, and that's all they are doing. So, you know, for example, what I just mentioned, having a camera in the front that detects stop signs or you know traffic signs. Um, that's really all they are doing, and th they have no concept of what a traffic sign is, what a stop sign is, etc. They just find some patterns and detect it. So if you put a, the patterns of you know a stop sign on your T-shirt and, and and stand in front of a car, it may also detect this and slam on the brakes, which, which is something a human would never do. Yeah, you just can't. It, it can't figure out the context. That's the right. Way. That's right. That's right. It has no context. It you know has no semantic understanding. It, it just detects statistics, right? So it just. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing to me is people talk about uh, self-driving cars, and this is going to be a really strange phenomenon, I think, for most people to consider when anything like this becomes marketable, and that there's this really strong desire people have for control. Um, and that, that's, that's generalizable to a lot of different contexts. I mean, if you, even if you have you know, some sort of system that's clearly going to give people exactly what they want, they still want the option to override. And, and so how, how is that going to work? I mean, is, is it going to be marketable to, to the average person to say, how, how much control are you willing to give over to the machine? <laughs> yeah, it's probably a, fa you know, a matter of getting used to it. So I, I certainly, I know my car has this um, adaptive cruise control. I don't know if you've, you know, if you've ever yeah, tried yeah. this. <laughs> and and uh, the first time it's weird, but then once you get used to it, it just becomes so pleasant to... So, so, yeah. if, uh, so if people listening, if you, if you haven't tried adaptive con cruise control, it, it will detect cars in front of you and slow down um, when they slow down, keep a, maintain a certain distance, I guess. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it always, you know, and it slams on the brake. If someone in front of me slams on the brake, it also slams on the brake. Yeah. And actually, it's much, you know, I find it much safer than when I am. You know, sometimes I turn around to my kids or something <laughs> while I'm driving. But with adaptive cruise control, that's no problem, right? Because if anything happens, it will slam on the brake for me. I think people will notice, you know, that it works really well, right? It's like a little bit like, you know, I don't know. If you have a teenage son or something who drives for the first time, at the beginning it's scary, but then once you realize, okay, <laughs> he or she, you know, they know what they're doing, then, you know, you kind of... That, that okay. fear never goes away. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, so, but it's one thing to turn on the, the adaptive cruise control. It'd be another thing if, uh, if you flip the switch for the adaptive cruise control and then the car just wouldn't allow you to intervene. But you have this with a bus driver, right? I mean, and I think a bus driver is even more scary, right? Because you don't know if the person had a drink beforehand, right? Or maybe he's just really, you know, frustrated with his relationship and partially suicidal, right? So, you know, so there's much more, you know, I feel like there's many more uncertainties with humans, you know, than there would be with a machine. At least you know the machine is, is you know, it doesn't have any of these factors, right? And that's, that's true. It's no, uh, yeah, exactly. It's, if there's something wrong with it, it's systematically wrong with it. <laughs> That's right. It affects everybody. So, so you, you can, I can give you statistics, right? You know, the car companies will be able to give you statistics and say, probability of an accident has, you know, is the following. I hesitate to bring up, I, I saw a news article, I think a couple of weeks ago, they launched a, a self-driving bus in Las Vegas. I have no idea whether it's, it's pure programming or, or AI. First, uh, first couple hours, it ended up getting into an accident. But it, <laughs> but it wasn't the fault of the bus. It was somebody else that ran into it from behind, so there wasn't much it can do, I guess. I don't know. 
<laughs> I mean, that, that's probably also true that people behave differently around these guys, right? So if you see that and you start looking, right, and then you suddenly forget that you still have to follow the rules. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, when I've messed around with, uh, with adaptive cruise control, which is about as far as I've gotten towards something self-driving, you sort of want to turn it on just to see, well, is it really going to stop when this guy does? Exactly. And it's, it, it, you, you might, I don't know. I, I, it would be really interesting to see. You put a self-driving bus out there, uh, you know, do people around there try and drive close to it and, and sort of scare it into doing things? <laughs> and they probably do, right? but, but only for a short amount of time, right? There's always when something unusual happens, right? And actually, we will see what happens in Saudi Arabia when women will be allowed to drive for the first time in the summer, you know, I guess next year, right? It will be a similar phenomenon that people at the beginning, like men will be very, you know, um, you know, will not be used to this, the sight, you know, and probably do something stupid. It's probably more, you know, <laughs> the guys reacting to this. They'll probably more do things danger. stupid, whether, yeah, probably <laughs> driving near them and probably also if they're sitting in the car with them, they'll... <laughs> I think that just brings us to a nice ending point. So thanks, <laughs> Professor Weinberger, sharing so interesting topic for us from machine learning perspective and thanks for David Just um, sharing your op opinion from behavior economics perspective. So all right folks, here comes to the end. We're so glad you're enjoying our podcast, Mad Hat Economics. Please share or contact us. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.